Welcome to the Blister Podcast, a program dedicated to interesting people, the great outdoors, and a bunch of other stuff we like. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, the founder of Blister, and as always, you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. A while back at a dinner party here in Crested Butte, my friend Mike Horn told me about a guy he knew named Bird, who I absolutely had to get on the podcast. I'm not sure whether Mike could tell that as he talked, I was primarily wondering, dude, are you being serious right now? But what Mike told me left me curious enough that I said, sure, and I asked Mike to put us in touch. Mike did, and two days ago, I recorded this conversation with the Birdman. And my two primary takeaways from the conversation were, number one, I should always trust Mike Horn, and number two, if you ever have the opportunity to talk to a guy named Bird, you can be certain that you will be in for a very interesting conversation. Bird, aka Michael Schaefer, grew up on a hippie commune in Twisp, Washington, where he fell in love with the surrounding mountains and with skiing. He eventually found his way to Chamonix, France, where he found a new home away from home and a community of ski mountaineers, lovers of mountains, and people who loved pushing themselves in alpine environments. I talked to Bird about all of these things, including, of course, how he got the bird name, how he forged his unique view of the world, the best ways to experience the mountains, the future of his most recent passion, speed riding, which is basically a combination of skiing and paragliding, where he continues to find his inspiration, and a whole lot more. I can't tell you how much I enjoyed this conversation, but I can say how happy I am to be able to share it with you. Before we get started, I want to remind you that our next Blister Speaker Series at Western Colorado University will be taking place on Thursday, March 28th, at 6 p.m. on the campus of Western in Gunnison, Colorado. And our guest is going to be one of our favorite people here at Blister, Dan Abrams, who is the president and co-founder of Flylo. As always, this is a free event that is open to the public, and we would love to see all of you there. And we hope you come armed with great questions to ask Dan, mostly because I am very curious to see if we continue our current streak of shutting out Marcel Proust. If you don't know what I'm talking about, go listen to our first two speaker series conversations, which you can find right here in this Blister podcast feed. All right, let's now go ahead and get to my conversation with the one and only Bird. Bird, how are you today? Oh man, Jonathan, I'm I'm doing good. You know, it's a, it's a day off. I planned on meeting with you and it's just the perfect day to take off. Uh, the temperatures have spiked around here. You know, it's been real cold for the last couple of months, which means it's it's been great skiing. But uh, now we're getting a spike in temperature. It's beautiful blue sky outside, but the snow has turned to uh, isothermic slop, and it's just time to take a break and let it do its thing. So, perfect day to be chatting with you, and uh, and I feel relaxed just being down and and hanging. And I should ask, where are you? today? I'm up in my home uh, in the North Cascades where I grew up. It's a place called the Methow Valley up in uh, Twisp, Washington. Twisp, Washington. And this is home? This is where you're originally from? Yep, it sure is, man. I grew up uh, with seven families up here. We, um, uh, Our parents met other families that wanted to raise their kids in a more natural environment. We all bought property, so it was kind of like a hippie spirit commune, I guess you could call it back in the day. And we helped uh, build each other's houses. And and I went out after graduating from high school, went to college and then went out and about in the world. And fortunately now I can come back to right where I grew up. And uh, yeah, it just feels good to be home most of the time. I love this place. That's amazing. So this is gonna be interesting. I've been waiting to ask you uh, this question for a while. When you meet somebody new, and they ask you, what is it that you do? How do you answer that question? <laughs> um, well, it depends on if they're asking me what I do for, for my life or what I do for money. 
So um, a lot of times over here in this part of the world, when somebody asks what you do, um, it usually means what's your job. And my job is in the summertime, I'm a, a wildland firefighter. It, it allows me to stay outside, work with good people. And most of the time, I feel like I'm doing a good job out there, um, doing the job. And we can make good money in a short amount of time, which is a bonus for being a skier work in the summertime when it's hot and there's fires for a couple months and then have a little nest egg to float the birds, so to speak, and, and, be, able to, and be able to ski full time. And it's always been my goal to have most, most of the time off for me to ski uh, as much as possible and ski and fly and enjoy the mountains and every, everything around it. So you answered the question of what you do for a job. You said the second uh, the way to answer such a question is, what are you doing with your life? Right. So that's funny. Yeah, because I, I really noticed that a lot of times over here, we, we, when we ask somebody what they're doing, that it's like, what do you do? What do you do? It's what your job is. But, you know, um, I notice in, in France in particular, just because I spent so much time there, when you ask somebody what they do, it's what their passions are. For me, it's, it's really being outside, plugging into a real source of energy. It's where my, my brain gets quiet my, and I can listen to myself. And um, skiing's been that avenue to really bring me there. At first, skiing was just you know, a way to, to get outside and have fun. And now it's a, it's a real way to, to follow that and have a real reason to go outside all winter long and, and into the spring and then dream about it during the summer. and go back to it when the winter starts again, you know? I've met my best friends and had my greatest experiences out there in the mountains because of skiing. That passion for skiing, did, does that go all the way back to the very early days living in Twisp? I mean, when, when did you really fall in love with the mountains? Uh, it was just growing up, it was natural. It was just growing up here and I didn't realize the love because it was just normal until I realized the importance of it. Maybe that was some maturity and maybe that was traveling around a little bit. Maybe that was coming back home and realizing where I grew up as well. But um, I think that appreciation just grew. And uh, I started skiing early on, first on cross-country skis, because it was easy to get out the door and just slide down the road. And until we could figure out how to get you know, alpine skis strapped to our feet and go to our little loop loop ski area here. Uh, that was a 13 tower Palma. That's uh, it's really where it all started was the loop loop ski bowl <laughs> and, and, and learning to ski with, ski with friends in junior high and, and sharing and sharing that uh, in the mountains. It was really good. Chamonix has played a huge role in your life. When did you first go to Chamonix? Oh, I, I, um, I went there in 1997, you know, it was, uh, the, what drew me to Chamonix wasn't, I did, it wasn't even on my radar. I was, I, I'm, I'm kind of someone that gets caught up in their own little world and in the, and in the moment. And, uh, fortunately back in the day, I met these guys, uh, Pitor Spresniks and, and Troy Young and up in Canada. And these guys were just on fire and alive and had been skiing things that, you know, I, I wouldn't even dream of. And, and they, they told me about this place, Chamonix. And, and, and shortly thereafter, I met some guys from California as we were traveling around and, and, um, and the connections happened. And I, I ended up making it over there in 97. By the way, Chamonix is probably one of the most connective mountain towns that I've ever been in the world. And it's, it's the kind of place where, you know, you can almost think about something and, and it, and then or think of a person and then right around the corner that there they are. I don't know if it's because the, the mountains are so high and the valley is so deep that the energy just rolls around and comes back to you. But uh, I've been going back almost every year since. And, um, we probably need to address this name of yours, Bird. Tell me a bit about how that moniker got attached to you. 
you know you can't self-name yourself, right? That's right. That's right. <laughs> you can't you can't self-nickname. Otherwise, you know that I have a little joke. I would have been Dolphin Boy because I found, <laughs> what? I found out about dolphins at an early age, and I wanted to be one. They were the most free-spirited thing that I that I knew. And um, you know, dolphins recognize themselves. They can look in a mirror and know that they're them. Every other mammal will attack themselves. They're uh, super free. They they don't want to hurt anything else, and uh, they love having sex. So, I figured that's a that's a really good way to be living life. But the bird thing, let's get back to that. <laughs> the the bird word it actually started early on in um, in the free ride days when free skiing, when the they were called still extreme competitions and then it turned to free ride and it was more about fluidity and not putting yourself in life and death danger. Uh, and the guy or girl that ended up doing something amazing but maybe didn't win, they won what we called the sick bird award. And the guys made up the sick bird award and because I was, um, I was a part of this, I didn't really compete all that much. I was more of a uh, a, a mascot almost. I liked to enjoy it for my friends that were doing it. And then we'd ski around before and after because I wasn't a very good competitor. I was way too intense on myself. And um, I didn't like that feeling that it brought to me with skiing. So I, I just was a supporter. And at the time I worked for a hemp clothing company. That's right, it was hemp. Um, we made hemp clothes and we wanted to promote this in that arena. And so we were we were promoting and traveling around with the whole uh, uh, free ride world tour. And uh, we just started using the bird word. We started saying, oh my God, he's in upper birdsville or what the bird's that guy doing? And, and uh, because I wasn't sponsored, I covered up my, my logos, my labels, and I wrote bird on there just to kind of make a point that, you know, we're so label oriented and we don't need to be. And I was just sort of making a joke about that to myself. And I wrote Bird on there and I realized what this did for people's thoughts. You know, it made him smile and this, this, this bird word grew. And now I carry it with me. And if the, the, the word bird helps inspire other people to do what they want to do in their own life, and that's what I'm carrying. Then I feel like I'm doing a good job along the way. So I just uh, I just kept the name. I, I'm going to ask you in a little bit about speed riding, but I, I want to come back a little bit. Let's start with a couple of terms. If I say the word ski bum or soul skier, what comes to mind? Yeah, I, I've always sort of had a... a a hard time with the word ski bum because it feels like you're just freeloading and trying to get by. What I got from Pitor was that one of the best ways to describe it was ski bohemian, you know, or maybe that was from Troy Youngen, but uh, it's like a skier that's, that's a traveler that's enriching their own life. And hopefully um, because of that, they're richer to share their experiences. And so I really appreciate that approach. You know, we're not just subsisting only to ski, but because we can ski, we have so much more to give. And we're fortunate to be able to do that. And, and a soul skier, you know, it's, it's really quite a few of my friends right around me. Um, they don't bring a camera. They rarely pull out their phone doesn't have Facebook or Instagram. And these guys going out because they need, they need to ski. They, that is their passion. That's where they get their energy. That's how they make it through their work week. And they, they go out and ski. And to me, that's, that's really soul skiing, you know, without an agenda other than to find the best snow and to be able to ski and be and, and commune with nature. That's, that's soul skiing to me. I've heard you say, I, I read this somewhere, um, what does it mean when you're out in the mountains when you say that you are still learning to listen to myself? Yeah, I just, I mean, I just had another, t uh, a lot of times I'm going, I'm going alone. 
And I think it's because I can listen to what, what the mountain and the, you know, what, what it's telling me outside of myself, but also um, I can really hear what it is inside, but I still battle on um, what is it that's driving me? You know, uh, I've, ha I've, I've always had this thing inside me that wants to go a bit further or go see what's on the other side or, you know, climb just a little bit higher to get in that, maybe that better position to start from. And, and sometimes that's not the right place to be. So what is driving me? Is it, is it my ego or is it, is it uh, so I can get a better GoPro shot or is it because, um, you know, it's really the, the right place for me to be. So it's a continual learning process. I think it's day to day and every time we're out there, it's good to give it time to be able to listen and see where, why, why you're really there and, and if it's really good for you to go. What do you, what do you mean by that, if it's really good for you to go? I think a lot of times um, we get ourselves in a little bit of trouble. We sort of knew we sort of knew beforehand that maybe it wasn't a good idea, or you know all the way inside that it's a really good idea. And uh, a good example was the other day I climbed up this peak and I dreamt of being able to fly off the top of it. And um, this day, the weather, the the motion, the the climb, getting to the top, everything that I visualized, it was it just happened, and I knew that it was. I mean, the the takeoff was critical, and um, and everything had to be just right. And that fear came up inside me, and I asked the question, you know, is this really for you? And and I knew all the way that it was. I didn't have any doubt. I didn't have any doubt, but. You know, there's other times when that that fear creeps in, and you and you start, you know, on your way, and you start to hear these other things, and you're like, okay, is this really for me today? You know, do I have to go? Do I have to go that way? Do I need to ski this thing now, or can I go down another way because something's not quite right? You know, it doesn't have to be something. I think that you can point or actually grab or put a finger on if there's just this you know uh red flag inside then maybe it's just not the right day for you for some reason even if the conditions are right and the snow's right and all these things there can still be something inside that maybe isn't quite right for you that day and i think just got to listen to what's inside otherwise things can happen even though it's good for everybody else that day you know Man, you are reminding me. I I just had a few weeks ago a conversation with Kristen Ulmer. This was really the heart of our entire conversation was uh, specifically fear and managing and negotiating and having a healthier relationship with fear. And it a lot of what you're saying right now certainly resonates with some of the things that she was talking about. And, and it's really interesting to hear you, like how keyed in you are to these things. And I love, as I asked you about these terms, the thing that you've done uh, so evidently is talked about this focus on the motivation. What is the motivation right now and today? And why am I doing this? And, and that's a kind of clarity or self-examination that it's cool for me to hear you talk about that because I'm not sure enough of us do a good job of thinking through the like, why this today or why this line right now? And, and I think I'll take a world where there's more self-examination as opposed to less. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, with, for me, with as many friends, uh, especially from Chamonix, but around the world that have that have died in the mountains and not that their intentions weren't good or bad, but just examining, you know, stuff that's happened to my friends and, and thinking about it, what were, what was the motivation? What was, what was the cause to the accident? And maybe if there was a different approach or somebody had said something or, or what have you, the outcomes might've been different. 
even in some big examinations of avalanche and, and death in the mountain, I think a lot of times it, it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to do with scientific explanations for the accidents. It's more feeling based. And at the time we had a choice. And so hopefully, you know, we can listen to ourselves and be able to voice our opinions if we're in a group with others to say, how do we feel right now? Like I've actually raised that question before a friend of mine went down and almost lost her life and her leg. She's still battling with it uh, a few years later, but we were rushing to go ski the face of Glacier Ronde and um, that's off the Gita Medi and Chamonix and it's, and uh, no one was going that way. And I started making the track and Nate and Seth and those guys were going down Cosmiques and I went over to the Ronde and, and all of a sudden everybody started to follow that way because someone was going to go first and cut the slope and it's, it's exposed and it's, it's, you know, it's a classic run, but it's, you know, definitely worth reckoning. And suddenly there, everybody's coming that way because everybody was chomping at the bit, but, but nobody was taking the lead. And then I just turned back and said, you know, how does everybody feel right now? What's going on? Cause there was this rush feeling, you know, like push. And I think everybody kind of looked at me like, what is he talking about? And then I dropped in, skied. Uh, Toph was right behind me and I'd already dropped in the Nick's Kuar and, and Mina had an accident because everybody was just rushing and what were we all doing there? And was it worth that accident? It didn't need to happen, but no one said anything or slowed it down, you know? So many times when, when things happen, there's a feeling inside beforehand and if we can if we can get that and evaluate it beforehand, it might might help us be able to stay and play in the mountains longer. If we were to imagine, say, 10 days where you're going out in the mountains, how many of those 10 days are you really getting into either very heavy situations, very consequential situations, and or how many of those 10 days are you like, wow, the, the fear level is pretty high right now? I don't know about the fear level because, you know, when it was Chamonix lifestyle uh, full on, we were put in those places so often that it was almost like normal. So it wasn't really a fear-based thing. It was It was more of adrenaline or dopamine based thing. And you got used to doing these things that were, are not normal. And we would go back there on a daily basis and, and it, and it becomes an everyday thing. And that's, and that's a lot to do with how we were living in Chamonix. Well, that also, um, you know, is, has brought some of our friends lives short, because if you don't realize the consequence and you go all the time, then things can happen, right? But now I think I think a little bit differently. I try to take my whole self to the mountain and be able to look at where I'm at and what I'm doing and, and evaluate it a little bit and then listen to myself like we were talking about and know if it's right for me or not. It's not always possible. It's, it's not always easy to hear what what inside yourself has to say. But uh, if you talked about 10 days, most days, I think it's, it's really, really casual. But if we're not listening to ourselves then either, I mean, you never, you never know when, when, when things can happen. So where is the, you know, where is the extreme level or where is it dangerous? It, it could be dangerous on the drive to the mountain, you know, it can be, it can be these little things where you're, you're just not paying attention or maybe you didn't listen to, to yourself. I think it's just appreciating where you're at at the time and, and, and being aware of what's going on, you know? Yeah, I was, it's funny, yesterday skiing here in Crested Butte, I was standing on top of this stupid line and was just completely freaked out. And it was really embarrassing. It was like, what are you doing? Like, this isn't anything. And the consequences if you know, you high side or catch an edge, like it's not, it's probably not death. And it was funny. And I was really embarrassed in the moment you kind of have that, you know, that hesitation thing. And then 
conversely, a couple years ago, boot packing up a line that I had zero hesitation about, you know, snow blew out on a boot pack and I broke my neck and probably oh, should have been dead. God. And, but, but it was like, so I like your answer to the question because it's like, there's no direct correlation, right? You know, like sometimes we might be really freaked out on something that is actually probably a lot less consequential than a different situation where it's like, yeah, you almost lost your life that day and you weren't nervous at all. I know it's, it's really the, just the grace of life and that, and that we get to keep living and exploring and, and going out there. Um, I just feel fortunate because as many chances as I've taken and, and not just pushing it, but just going out there haphazardly or whatever, and, you know, hoping for the best kind of thing, you know, in my life or whether it be in the mountains or at the party or, or whatever, that I get to keep going and keep exploring and keep sharing this thing that we, we're calling life. When other people make the smallest mistake and all of a sudden they're, they're gone, you know? So I think appreciation is just, is my biggest deal. If I can be thankful for what I've got and what's happening now, then hopefully it'll keep on going a little bit longer. <laughs> I want to ask you about another passion of yours, speed riding. Um, for those who don't know, what is that? Uh, speed riding or speed flying. Um, over here we do, you know, in, in Washington or in, in U.S., we do mostly speed flying. It's like a little paraglider but it's made for descent. Whereas a paraglider um, or parapont, they say in France, it's a big parachute wing, you know, that you're, you're using to get higher in the sky to catch those thermals and go up. So the, the speed wing or the speed glider, it looks like a paraglider, but it's small and it's made for descent. And you can change the angle of your attack and contour landscape and so you're flying down. It's basically like, feels like skiing powder in the sky. So you, you start skiing, the, the wing comes up overhead. You got lines to the top, front and back and brake lines, and then you take off. And when you dive, you, you lean your body one way, tilt your head a little, and then pull a little bit on your left or right brake. And that'll turn and round your turnout. And every time you turn, you're losing elevation. So if you look at these points and you dive towards them, the more you do it, you can end up diving and barrel rolling and then and bringing that your position right to where you want to be right where you're looking. And so just like any other sport like skiing, you know, you look where you want to go. Well, flying, you look where you want to go and you can and you can fly there with this little wing. And um, and it's been developed such that if you're in big open slopes, you can land and ski with it overhead and use that wing as sort of a, um, you know, almost like a telemark ski. So it's like your wing is a part of your ski turn and you use your brakes and your, and your skis together so that you can ski with this thing. And now what my friends are doing on these big open you know, super exposed faces, they can make real ski turns and then fly off and then land again. And that's speed riding, you know, and that's, we see that more in Europe where there's big open, you know, glaciers and, and lifts that are going high in the mountains and you can, you can fly a little bit and then ride and then fly again. What I've, what I've been using it um, more so for is to be able to ski, just ski a, a, a closed out line where normally you'd have to repel. And then I, I pull my wing out and instead of repelling, I can fly off and keep that flow going and play all the way down. So in the springtime, when, when actually you're skiing these big, uh, big mountain line and you get to the place where you're you know, at the end and there's cliffs and you gotta repel down, well, the guys are taking, you know, two or three more hours to get down the mountain. We can be down in, you know, in minutes. It's become a, a, a new way to kind of view the mountain and how you can ski something. And uh, I'm really looking forward to 
well, going back to Chamonix for one and, and exploring how we can use this, this wing in combination to skiing. It's been a real. It's been a really hard thing for uh, like ski alpinists to look at speed riding as being part of what they do because they don't they don't do it. Yeah. So so when they look at speed riding and they got this guy with the wing above him and he's riding making turns and then he takes off and flies, it's amazing. But it's not really accepted, yeah. and it's it's been hard for my sponsors or the people, my partners that I'm working with um, to accept it as a, as a viable sport that they want to promote. But since the, I've been skiing first and then using the wing as an exit tool, so instead of ski basing, we're using it to fly off the mountain and then play all the way down and then land again and ski again as well with the wing overhead, it's, it's more digestible. So it, this is, it's kind of the, the beginning of something that is exciting and just open, it, it's opened up more avenues in the mountains, I think, especially in springtime when shit's melting down and, and those rappels can be dangerous, you know, that, that getting off the mountain, getting through those moraines can be, you know, life-threatening. And when you can fly over it and be down in minutes, it's, it's a pretty cool way to go, eh? You are currently talking about this as if we are, this is a sort of new frontier as opposed to something like, yeah, yeah, you know, this has been going on for decades. When you say that you'd like to see this become a more accepted form of alpinism or ski mountaineering, I mean, is this something that you are kind of actively encouraging people to get into? Or is this a little bit more like, you know, say Alex Honnold, who isn't exactly trying to spark a free soloing revolution. You know, he's not exactly like, come on, everybody, come try this without ropes. Um, yeah, exactly. I'm not going to go anywhere near what that guy's trying to do. I mean, I don't even, you know, and more power to him. But uh, no, I just think that it's, it's, it's a freedom in the mountains. And yes, it's, you know, speed riding and has been developing since, you know, early 2000, or maybe even a little bit before when they tried to manipulate some paragliders for, to, to ski with, you know. Um, but um, I think the approach to being able to ski big mountain lines and then use the wing as a, as a tool, like you would um, crampons or ice axes to get off the mountain. It's, it's not, um, you know, just throw your chute and hope for the best, even though my ski base jumper friends are going to probably scoff at what I just said there. Um, it's, it's, I think it's a tool that can really be used to, to, to increase your enjoyment of your descent. Um, and, and I guess if if that if that turns you on, or if if that's something that seems like it would be in your realm of possibility, you know, if you wanted to try, then by all means, it, you should you should learn how to fly. Hmm. Well, your description of it's like skiing pow in the sky. I, I'm not sure I've heard a better description of anything ever. That's that's about the best branding possible for speed riding. Yeah, I, I, I don't know if I can take credit for that. One of the guys I learned from early on was Armand Debut, and he um, he he was describing it to me like, well, every day is a powder day in the sky, and so that's probably why I got it from that because <laughs> there is no pressure. You know, it's it's in your hips, and the pre the that positive force of making that turn in the sky is like that pow turn, you know, you just want it to go on forever. You can ski thousands of feet when the snow is hero, you know, and when you're in the sky and the, and the, and the wind is calm and there's no, there's no bad air, there's no bubbles or anything. And you can just look all the way down and crank turns and barrel roll and dive and play with the terrain. It's, it's really something else. And I think, I think about it all the time. <laughs> it does sound enticing and compelling. And so, I don't know, I've never done it. So someday perhaps. Yeah, if you, you know, if someone's interested in that sort of thing, it's always good to take like a paraglide course. It's really close to what it is to speed fly. It's just slower and it's actually more 
dynamic and more difficult to learn because you're dealing with a big wing. And if you can get that off the ground and then land that thing where you want to, then you're kind of on your way to being able to speed fly. It's a great way to learn and it's a really good way to to learn from somebody that's a real teacher so that you won't have to go through the mistakes I made. No, <laughs> no, I, 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 I did start with a, a beginning paraglide course and, and they were some of the best uh, paraglide teachers, you know, to get their students in the first day to get them to take off. I mean, how do they do that and, and be okay with themselves? Cause you're, you're putting somebody up in the sky you, and you're not riding along with them. So to be able to coach this and, um, and feel comfortable doing it, you know that those those instructors are are really good at what they do, you know? Let's talk for a minute about social media. You've already talked about getting into the mountains, staying aware and being aware, and that this is what we need to do, frankly, to stay alive or to not get really, really injured. Yeah, yeah, or, or just... Uh, I really appreciate the moments that were that we're sharing, you know? Yeah, exactly. Talk to me a little bit about how you see this new landscape of social media affecting those dynamics. Well, gosh dang, it's it's definitely been on my mind and more and more so because I'm I'm someone that not only wants to share for myself, but I'm working with um, good companies, Black Crows and Nerona, to, to, to name a few, um, not to name drop, but these, these companies, I've developed relationships, you know, for over 10 years. And, um, and I really appreciate working with, with good people that are running good companies. And a big part of, of sharing the experience is to share it with or for them, you know, as a, as a partnership. And when we're going out in the hills and we want to feel what the feeling is for us and to have a good time out in the mountains and and to ski what we want to ski and then there's this social media factor that comes in and now with the you know the Instagram story and the IGTV and all these different avenues that we're supposed to share and if we didn't put it on the story or the social media did it happen kind of thing um, yeah, it's distracting. Uh, I don't, I'm, I'm learning how to navigate myself and I'm trying to set parameters so that I'm not always taken away because I found myself wanting to share, especially going out by myself. I'm almost talking to my phone, taking little movies, like I'm talking to somebody else, even making decisions. And I've been using the phone for that and then telling the story as I'm going along. But when does it become too much and when is it taking away from your mountain experience? You know, how, how do we be able to share the experience with others on, you know, social, on social media and still retain the sacredness that mountains are, you know, they're, they are sacred and it's, it's, it's a journey every time you go out there and, what you can come away with is something special. And it's not just what we're capturing on our phone or on our GoPro to share on social media. Although, you know, if it's your job as well, how do you navigate it? I don't know. We're, we're learning. It's a, it's, a brave, it's a brave new world with this thing. I found myself thinking a bit, maybe it's not the worst analogy, to think about social media the way we think about alcohol, you know, like I love having a drink, but some people are not very good at having one or two. <laughs> That'd be right? me. That's me. Yeah. And, and so it's like, well, this, like a whole lot of other facets of our lives, it's like, can you, can you set those parameters that you talked about? And if you find somebody that's like, oh, if I have one, I, that tends to slide into four or five, or I become an angrier person. And I think that maybe we all need to do a better job of just figuring out, like, can we use booze in a, in a beneficial way? Can we use social media in a beneficial way? And for some people, the answer might be like, nope, it's best for me to completely abstain. But I don't know, I, I've started thinking of it a little bit in those terms, like, 
can you can you navigate or use these things in a way that ultimately you view makes your life better? Um, because if you if you don't or if we can't, these can both be pretty destructive things. They're they're they definitely can, and I and I've and I've been at times just looking at what I'm doing, maybe stuck on you know like scanning through stories or like paging through people's stuff, you know, other people's stuff, just because I'm, I'm stuck on the device, you know, or, or I'm getting so critical about how I want to post something because I want, you know, I like to write and I want the picture to be perfect and how much time I'm spending, you know, what does it really mean kind of thing? Because I got this personality where if I'm going to do something, I want to do it the best I can, you know, all the way. And, um, and all of a sudden it can be like, well, this is really taking up a lot of my precious time and time's going by fast as we know it. And how do, and how do we want to spend it? And so, you know, I'm working on, I'm working on being able to share the things that I want to and be able to post it. And the idea is to be able to post it in the morning or in the evening and then not come back to it until, you know, a certain time. And, and that could be at the end of the day after we've done other stuff, or it could be back in the morning, but trying to figure out, Hey, what, what's a good way to, to be able to share my experiences because I'm all about using the bird for inspiring. You know, that's, I feel, I feel like that's a big reason why I'm, I'm, I'm here is to help others, you know, follow their own, their own passions, their own dreams. And social media is a, is a great platform for that, but let's just not let it take us over. Right. Yeah. I mean, what an incredible tool for sharing and connecting. And yet like these things can be abused and become detrimental. And we know from the studies coming out and all the rest, like we need to get a handle on this right now. And I think each of us needs to, just get a healthier relationship to this, to this medium and to this technology. And, and, um, I, I actually, I'm actually optimistic about it. I think we're going to get smarter and gain a better understanding, but I don't think we're there right now. No. And we, another thing with that is, you know, I, I really think that we got to be careful on, on these sacred places, you know, in the mountains and, and otherwise that, yeah, we have these killer experiences and we want to share with people where we're at and what we're doing, but let's, let's take care on how we're, how we're promoting places because these sacred places that are, are so very special, especially to, to old school people, you know, when you start dropping pins and drawing lines and doing all that stuff, you know, you got, let's, we, we got to really be careful on, on how we're, on how we're promoting these, the, these sacred places. Yep. And by the way, I think one of the things that is consistent here with this entire conversation is, you know, you've spoken really well about skiing as being a, a, an act of freedom. That's one of the things we're talking about here with the social media stuff is, again, it's not the only concern here, but just one of the concerns is if this becomes something that is actually a hindrance to freedom, Exactly. If you're, if you're doing something that like, let's say it's alcohol or whatever that's taken away from skiing, if that's your passion and that's your freedom, then you're going to cut that out of your life because you don't want to, you don't want to fuck up your, your, your passion, your freedom, your skiing. And so if, if, if the social media is something that's actually screwing up your, the freedom of skiing, then Boy, all means cut that shit out. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Well said. Let me let's talk a bit about uh, what's out there next for you. Do you think, or what's what's becoming on what's coming on the horizon that you're excited about? I think continuing to build relationships, working with uh, good people out there to to create um, and to create things that help inspire others to get out and do what they want to do. I, I know I've kind of brushed on this, but if I can keep building these, these relationships and, and stay creative, 
and stay outside uh, and help others follow after what they're doing, then, boy, I feel like I'm doing a good job and things, you know, the, the windows keep opening. Uh, there's, there's opportunities everywhere, you know, positive, uh, positive and a positive is a positive, right? So, uh, I think just keep going towards that, uh, that feeling. It doesn't have to be something specific because there'll be, there'll be things in my life that will open up as long as, as long as I can keep a balance on, on what's important for me, um, as, as like a, as a foundation, then, then appreciation stays and, and the good things will happen. I'm curious if these days you are finding inspiration from uh, books or movies or music or podcasts. Are, are there specific mediums that you find yourself particularly drawn to at the moment? Um. Maybe not mediums, but but people, and I guess a deeper appreciation for for where where I'm at, and the the power of being outside and being in being in these natural places. Like I really, I really come to understand or start to understand really about plugging into the power of the natural and using that energy to, to be able to be, you know, a better person. And that's one of my biggest inspirations and, and seeing other people that have been able to create a life, um, of their own and, and, and watching their journeys unfold as they, as they almost you know, manifest what they want to do in their lives. It's, it's real inspiration. A lot of my friends have been inspiration in me following my own path. It's not so much books or film or music, it's friendships and the people in your life. That's pretty good. Yeah, it really, it really is. Um, and, and it seems like the, the wiser I get, I guess, or maybe I'm supposed to say older. I have a hard time with that because we're all getting older. But uh, the the more I understand, the the more I get that, boy, my friends are really special people, and the ones that are here and that are gone, and that um, I've learned so much. And if they have, if they didn't accept me for the weird wild person that I am and lit and lift me up at times that I've needed it or given me, you know, the words that I, of encouragement that I needed, you know, I don't know where I'd be, you know, without those friends and family. So it's really my biggest inspiration are, are definitely the, the friends that I've been fortunate to surround myself with. And I mean, I mean, God dang, we get to spend our, our lives up, up in the Hills and, and share those experiences with, with others, it's, it's freaking fortunate. <laughs> it's not bad. Not bad. What's the best question that I haven't asked you? Oh, man. The best question you haven't asked me would be, what the hell are you doing up there all by yourself, boy? <laughs> What's the answer? Well, I, I do live up on this hill, um, and I did grow up with these families, and a lot of the kids have come back, and I'm, I'm actually in the cabin that we built next door to the house I grew up on, and that I get to come back here. I'm so thankful for my family, but I spend, I do spend a lot of time alone up here, and it's, it's interesting when you, when you're spending most of the day by yourself, either outside or, you know, at your, at your place, what your mind can do and how do I, you know, how do I spend the day and, and, and what kind of talk do I have within myself about, you know, what's important? It's, it's, it's pretty dang funny. Um, I think you'll have to come visit to, to really get it, but, uh, but I just, you know, I, I just feel fortunate to be up here and, and to be able to have this time before traveling and going out into the into the world. I'll be going to Chamonix here in um, in a couple of weeks, and I stay there for a month or so. 
you know, that this is one of the places that I can come back to and really regroup and, and pull all the pieces back together and remember what's important for, for going back out again. Well, first of all, I would love to come check out uh, your stomping grounds. You're really welcome. You know, spring, summer, uh, summer's turning into a bit of a fire show, you know, around August. It can oftentimes be really smoky and, you know, in, the, in Washington. But um, yeah, you're definitely welcome, man. I'd love, love for you to come visit. That sounds fantastic. I also think it's really compelling that you just got done talking about the deep inspiration and appreciation you have for these rich friendships that you've cultivated. And yet you also have this season in your life where you spend a lot of time alone. That sounds like a pretty good, uh, pretty good dynamic you've got going on. Yeah. And you just put it really clearly for me. I, I do need that. Um, I do need that time to pull back and after, going on tour or being out skiing, you know, or in different places in the world, or, you know, I'm, I'm pretty empathic and I take on a lot of other, other stuff when I'm out there and I'm, and I, and I like to give everything that I can to the situation. So when I come back home, I really appreciate pulling back and recharging, so to speak, getting into that cocoon, figuring out what I need to, to fully recharge so that when I go back out there, I can be sort of the best bird I can be. Ka-ka. Ka-ka. Ka-ka, Flocker. <laughs> that was Flocker, not, you know. Yeah, I got you. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, um, this has been a real pleasure. Uh, I've really appreciated this time in this conversation and, um, I also appreciate you filling us in on everything you've been up to and the way that you're seeing the world. And um, yeah, thanks so much for, for taking the time. Oh man, it's been a real pleasure. You know, when I have a conversation like this, uh, yeah, sometimes it's hard not to go deep, but it really gives me a chance to, you know, that I've been reflecting and thinking about things um, that we can talk about it so freely. It was really easy to share with you, you know, how I'm feeling and what's going on in the moment and what the plans are for the future. It really kind of sets, um, sets the tone for today and the future. And, and I appreciate hanging out with you, man. Likewise. Well, hey, uh, hopefully we can connect again down the line sometime and, and perhaps, uh, perhaps in Washington. But till then, best of luck with everything you've got going on. And I sure hope this upcoming Chamonix trip is uh, is a really fulfilling and, and fun one. Oh yeah, there's some good things to look forward to. I'm going over for good reasons and uh, and it's, it's friends like family over there as well. So um, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I, I, I appreciate this time, Jonathan. Thanks a lot, man. Well, thank you. We'll talk to you soon. Okay, brother. All right. Take care, bird. Kaka. That's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. Thanks to Bird for the conversation. And you can find Bird on Instagram and Facebook under the handle of Birdware. That's W-H-E-R-E. And you can also check out a few of his skiing and speed riding videos in the show notes to this episode on the Blister website. Thanks also to Luke Alley for producing this episode. And don't forget to come out to Western Colorado University on March 28th to hear me grill Flylo founder Dan Abrams. Thanks, everybody. Take good care out there, and we will talk to you again next week.